It's pretty hard these days to avoid hearing news about computer chips. Massive worldwide chip shortage. Earnings being cut by up to $2 billion. We don't have these chips, we're in trouble. Recently, we've seen how a shortage of computer chips has caused delays in production of automobiles that has resulted in reduced hours for American workers. And now there aren't enough of them getting made, a massive global shortage. There are just not enough chips to go around. Probably a number of weeks, if not months. What to do? When the chips are down, some takeaways are now substituting anyone for sweet potato. Okay, that last one was actually about a potato shortage in Australia affecting fast food restaurants, you know, because they call them chips. The pandemic led to a lot of supply chain bottlenecks, and semiconductors were no exception. Semiconductors, the colloquial term for those little chips inside phones and TVs and cars and dozens of other consumer devices, also became a point of geopolitical weirdness in the last few years. The United States government is increasingly anxious about the fact that while a few big tech companies still design computer chips here, the manufacturing happens somewhere else. Specifically, a lot of the supply chain is in East and Southeast Asia. Remember Nancy Pelosi's infamous visit to Taiwan in summer 2022? Well, in addition to meeting with elected officials, she also met with top executives from TSMC, the biggest chip manufacturer in Taiwan and in the world. As many commentators have pointed out, there is some irony to the United States ending up in this position. Semiconductors as we know them were invented in the United States. They're the reason we call Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley. It was an industrial manufacturing hub for advanced electronics, like silicon chips. But Silicon Valley hasn't been a manufacturing hub for a long time. And the company that kicked off the semiconductor revolution, Fairchild Semiconductor, disappeared into a corporate acquisition in 2016. Fairchild may no longer exist, but its achievements haven't been forgotten. Its founding story is the stuff of legend in computer history. Its founders are legends too, although most of them really became legendary for companies they started after leaving Fairchild, some of which remain important today, like Intel. But all eight of the guys who started Fairchild Semiconductor in 1957 were gone by 1969, which is when the historical literature on Fairchild Semiconductor also drops off. For this episode of RipCorp, we're going to take a look at some of the stuff that happened at Fairchild Semiconductor after its well-documented breakthroughs to try and understand why the company that helped invent arguably the most technologically significant development of the 20th century didn't remain competitive, and how the way we understand Fairchild's story, or don't, matters for how we think about the past, present, and future of chip manufacture. To understand Fairchild Semiconductor, we have to start with Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory. To understand Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory, we have to start with Bill Shockley. So Bill Shockley is a Nobel Prize winning, famously credited with the invention of the transistor. Malcolm Harris is the author of a few books, most recently among them Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. The transistor, for those who aren't familiar, is a key building block of digital electronics. 
Silicon microchips are made up of hundreds of little transistors. Shockley was part of the team that figured out the material science of transistors at Bell Labs in the late 1940s. The role, the precise role he played in the invention of the transistor at Bell Labs is disputed, is, uh, is conflictual, but he, he played an important role. He's an important engineer and before that had done important work in the federal government on weapons programs. Shockley got funding to start a transistor company under the umbrella of electronics firm Beckman Instruments in 1955. He named the company Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory. Transistors are made with semiconductor metals, which are, well, semiconductive, meaning that their conductivity can be controlled with precise chemical manipulation. Chemically doped semiconductor metals can move around electrons in specific ways. And this is the basic foundation of digital electronics. Shockley's company set out specifically to make the first silicon transistors. Up until that point, transistors had been made with germanium. Germanium was much more conductive, but silicon, among other benefits, had a higher melting point, which meant that it might have a more reliable performance. When he starts out his own private company to build transistors that he had invented, uh, he builds it in Palo Alto, and that becomes the silicon industry within Silicon Valley. So he's the guy who brought silicon to Silicon Valley. And that's an important decision. Although a big reason Shockley picks Palo Alto is it's where he grew up, his mom was a Stanford alum, Shockley arrives back in Palo Alto right around the time Stanford University had positioned itself as a key West Coast hub for electrical engineering firms. Another important thing to know about growing up amidst Stanford intellectuals is that Bill Shockley was totally a eugenicist. Oh yeah, not just a eugenicist, but really one of the most prominent American racists of the second half of the 20th century. He's a real organic intellectual of Palo Alto, and those ideas are fundamental to the culture and the place that he grew up in is racial differentiation. Throughout the early and mid-20th century, Stanford University churned out a lot of shitty race science, and that is the culture in which Bill Shockley came up. Bill Shockley being a eugenicist does have ramifications on the creation of Fairchild Semiconductor, insofar as race science dweebs are terrible bosses. Shockley was paranoid that by recruiting the best of the best, his employees might usurp or double-cross him. At the same time, a weird thing about eugenicists is they tend to believe that somehow they're definitely the ones who are genetically superior to everyone else. Paranoia and arrogance don't make for great management. Shockley put his employees through a barrage of psychological evaluations. He obsessively micromanaged, and he abruptly switched his employees off of the project he ostensibly founded the company to create, the Silicon Transistor. Eight of Shockley's employees, Julius Blank, Victor Greenwich, Jean Ernie, Eugene Kleiner, Jay Last, Gordon Moore, Robert Noyce, and Sheldon Roberts, really wanted to build silicon transistors. They also wanted to get away from their awful boss, who in later years would purportedly refer to this crew as the traitorous eight. Very dramatic. So they went looking for an investor to start their own company. Enter Sherman Fairchild. Sherman Fairchild is a... He's sort of represented as the flyboy son of a rich family, which he is. That's true. His dad founded and led IBM, and he was a only child, I believe, and inherited his dad's shares and stake in IBM. But he was also a real innovator in the aviation field. 
Fairchild had made his own fortune in airplanes and avionics on top of the IBM shares. And when he decided to invest in this new silicon transistor company in 1957, he proposed a pretty clever setup. Sherman Fairchild agreed to give this new venture $1.38 million for 18 months. The eight guys effectively owned the company outright for that period. And if it works, he'll buy them out for three hundred grand each, which is like a few million, uh, I believe, in today's dollars. And if it doesn't work, he'll pull out and it won't be a problem. But it succeeds very quickly. The firm succeeds very quickly. Sorry, um, spoiler alert. Fairchild figured out making silicon transistors. And in 1959, they made an even bigger breakthrough, the integrated circuit. I'm kind of speedrunning the technical side of this story, partly because the thing that sets Fairchild apart isn't just the silicon transistor. Jack Kilby at Texas Instruments had figured out their manufacturing process roughly around the same time. But Fairchild figured out making them cheaply by reducing labor costs. The process that they use to make the integrated chips is much more efficient from a production standpoint than Kilby's process, which involved hand wiring the elements together. Instead, they're dissolving a film across the top. All of this is to say that buying out Fairchild Semiconductor was an easy calculation for Sherman Fairchild within those first two years. They'd made millions of dollars in sales. They were manufacturing transistors that were going into intercontinental ballistic missiles and NASA tech. In 1959, Fairchild Semiconductor went from being operated by its original founders as their own company, effectively, to being a division of Sherman's avionics company, Fairchild Camera and Instrument. Sounds like a win-win for Sherman and our traitorous eight, but... And you have the beginning of the Silicon Valley founder syndrome, where you've got these founders of this company who are now turned into workers for this company, but who also have, you know, are today's equivalent of millions of dollars in their bank accounts. And so don't really feel like going to work that much and at the same time feel undervalued as a worker and feel like maybe they should do something else. At the same time that the Fairchild Semiconductor founders were feeling a little disenfranchised, investors were very eager to get in on this new industry. They're being plied with Wall Street cash because financiers are looking at the deal that Sherman Fairchild made that didn't cost him that much. And he spun up this microchip company very quickly with these scientists and made a ton of money. He's printing money at that point. By 1961, half of the original eight founders, Jay Last, Jean Ernie, Sheldon Roberts, and Eugene Kleiner had left the company for their own ventures. In the case of Kleiner, he actually would go on to more or less invent Silicon Valley venture capital as we know it with the firm Kleiner Perkins. Gordon Moore and Robert Noyce left in 1968 to start what would become Intel. Victor Greenwich went back to academia that same year, and Julius Blank left to do startup consulting in 1969. But it wasn't just the founders of Fairchild Semiconductor who were enticed by investors looking for big returns. The bright young engineers Fairchild Semiconductor had drawn out to the West Coast from legacy East Coast electronics firms wanted their own piece of the Californian-American dream. In an oral history interview with the Computer History Museum, former Fairchild production manager Charlie Spork described it this way. Well, I think it was part of the culture. You got all these young guys trying to make it big, and many of them leaving the company and starting other little companies, and it's working. And uh, it occurs to me, you, and you're talking to your friends, and they're telling you, we ought to do something. Yeah. Right? It's hard to resist. Yeah. It's hard to resist the, uh, the challenge. It's hard to resist the opportunity of being a 
big frog in a little puddle, you know. Mm. And it's usually at this point that popular histories wrap up with a recognition of all the fair children companies that came out of Fairchild Semiconductor hemorrhaging talent. Intel and maybe AMD are probably the only ones people have heard of today, while most of the others, Signetics, Intersil, Teledyne, National, have, like Fairchild, been absorbed into other companies. We could call this period the first death of Fairchild. That first generation had to die in order, because when it exploded, it exploded like a sea pot. Mike Malone has been writing about Silicon Valley for over 40 years, both as a journalist at the San Jose Mercury News and as an author. I go so far back that Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs were my neighbors. In his 1985 book, The Big Score, The Billion Dollar Story of Silicon Valley, Mike described Fairchild as a corporate vocational school. This is sort of a jab at the fact that most of the original eight founders were in their early 30s when the company began and had no idea how to run a company. A fact that a lot of the early histories of the company really gloss over. Yeah, early Fairchild has left almost no record, and most of the record is prosaic. Yeah. It doesn't capture the fact that it was basically a giant frat house filled with a bunch of engineers under 30 who changed the world, made millions of dollars. They look, you see pictures of them, they're all got the skinny black ties and all looks like madmen. But these guys were hard drinking, hard living. As the first mover, Fairchild Semiconductor was the place where a lot of future semiconductor executives learned how to be semiconductor executives. Through trial and error, they shaped the norms and standards of this new industry for better and for worse. A really important norm that Fairchild established for the nascent semiconductor industry was keeping manufacturing labor as cheap as possible. This meant two things, union busting and offshoring. Charlie Spork, the production manager we heard from earlier, described the atmosphere around organized labor when he arrived at Fairchild thusly. You know, most of us at Fairchild came from the East Coast, big union facilities. And we saw how disastrous that was mm. to uh, company success. Mm. We were dead set against unions. Mm. In his 2001 memoir, Spork offers familiar lines for the problems with unions in tech. Quote, We were more than willing to pay competitive wages and benefits, and we were proud to provide good working conditions. But the last thing in the world we needed was a union contract that specified what each rigidly defined category of worker could and could not do. We were in a state of continuous modifications of methods, fixtures, instruments, etc. End quote. Whether the wages and working conditions were that great is up for debate, but we'll come back to that later. In the oral history, it also sounds like Spork really didn't like people saying mean things about management. I mean, unions in the East Coast, I don't know about now, but then, they were destructive to the company. Mm. The only, the, the way they sold themselves to employees was that goddamn company. Mm. You know, those bastards. Mm. We gotta get them, you know, kind of attitude. It was very destructive. Yeah. And we changed that around. And one of the things we did is give employees all employees, stock yeah. options. Yeah. This was a fairly new concept at the time. Offering stock options to employees was not really a thing. It's a really good union-busting technique insofar as it, A, makes a worker's personal wealth contingent on the company's profits, which would, according to management, be harmed by a union, and B, it perpetuates the illusion that workers are active participants or co-owners in the company by being both workers and shareholders, although their share is minuscule relative to, say, their managers. 
Stock options have remained a staple of Silicon Valley employment packages to this day. And while union drives have increased in recent years, the region remains extremely averse to organized labor. Offshoring, also a relatively new concept at the time, offered other benefits. And in 1962, Fairchild got into it very early on thanks to a side business of one of its founders. I have to say Bob Noyce was the first guy to say, you know, instead of building these things in Portland, Maine, why not go to Hong Kong? Because he had already established a pocket radio plant, and he knew what the wage differences were. He knew the availability of, of engineers and the wage difference there and so on. And he said, we really uh, should try this. Noyce sent Spork and Fairchild co-founder Julius Blank out to Hong Kong to scope out and ultimately establish a Fairchild facility there. We made the wafers here and tested them here. And we shipped them, it was transistors. Yeah. And we shipped them uh, to Hong Kong. Mm and uh, they assembled them and, and test them, and yeah. test them, many of which they sold right there. And it was a winner. It was the yeah. first offshore assembly plant. To be clear, some of this is a matter of unique timing. The semiconductor industry becomes a thing right around the time a number of Southeast Asian governments were actively courting U.S. companies for industrial development. Electronics companies didn't invent the practice of offshoring single-handedly or by themselves, but they did make a pretty concerted effort to seek out the lowest wage labor possible to increase their profits. Amidst all of the rapid expansion and offshoring and innovative stock option shenanigans, there's one other important technical aspect of integrated circuits we have to talk about, particularly as it relates to the people who have to make those circuits. While most people focus on the silicon part of silicon chips and maybe understand that computers are made out of metal, making computer chips is an extremely chemical-intensive process. Fairchild worked closely with vendors to develop chemicals powerful enough for the creation of ultra-pure, ultra-precisely calibrated devices. They weren't exactly attentive to the potential health impacts of those chemicals, and the chemical industry wasn't exactly studying it. In a 2004 oral history interview with the Science History Institute, Fairchild co-founder Jay Last talked about the challenges of working with novel chemicals like this very briefly. In this clip, he talks specifically about trichloroethylene, a commonly used solvent in the semiconductor manufacturing process. The Gordon he mentions here is Fairchild and later Intel co-founder Gordon Moore. Gordon probably told you this, but uh, he went to some chemical engineers at Stanford or Berkeley or something. So what's the, what are the health problems of using lots of trichloroethylene? And the, and the answer he got back was, the only thing we can see is you have a big enough tank of it and you fell in and you drowned. <laughs> but that was the existing mm -hmm. right. climate for that kind of uh, chemical use that nobody knew of these things. Trichloroethylene, for the record, is a carcinogen, and would eventually be phased out of semiconductor manufacture for this reason. While I want to believe that Last and Moore were acting in good faith, as the industry rapidly grew, its attitude toward occupational health and safety didn't really become much more robust than the equivalent of talking to a couple of chemical engineers. And that would have some pretty bad consequences for Silicon Valley. Well, it's the classic haunting narratives of the 20th century, right? Are like, there's a tox there's toxic monster because of the toxic waste you dumped in the river and you're on an Indian burial ground. And like, Palo Alto could not be more on Indian burial ground slash toxic waste dump. And so that's one of the reasons I think about it as such a like comically haunted place. 
But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to 1968. Bob Noyce, the one who had the idea to set up a facility in Hong Kong, He'd been chosen back in the day to be general manager of the company when Sherman Fairchild first invested. Today, he's often remembered for being a brilliant executive, though, as Mike Malone puts it, that might be a result of the Fairchild corporate vocational school thing. Bob Noyce was not a good manager, even though he became a great man at Intel. Maybe one, you know, he's up there with Packard and, and Jobs. Uh, but he was a terrible manager because he couldn't fire anybody. So he had a bunch of alcoholics on his staff. He had layabouts, everything else. Regardless, in general, it does seem like Bob Noyce was near universally liked by both layabouts and hardworking engineers. When he left Fairchild Semiconductor in 1968, it was a huge blow to company morale. While Noyce described his decision to leave in terms of wanting to build something new, he may have also understood that Fairchild Semiconductor wasn't doing that great. Between 1965 and 1967, their sales had stayed flat, and for about 18 months, they didn't turn a profit. To replace Noyce, Fairchild Cameron Instrument brought in Lester Hogan, then the general manager of Motorola's semiconductor division. Hogan had successfully taken Motorola from a barely breaking even semiconductor division to 30 million in profits over 10 years. So there was some hope that he might straighten out Fairchild Semiconductor. And on paper, he did. Between 1968 and 1974, Fairchild's sales tripled. But Hogan's decision to bring in a bunch of guys from Motorola, nicknamed, of course, Hogan's Heroes, didn't help morale. Well, Fairchild, those guys had a lot of pride. I mean, they had, they knew they had changed the world. And to have a, their competitors come in and be their bosses was kind of the last straw. In short, under Les Hogan, Fairchild Semiconductor was a reliable, arguably more solid company, but it lost its reputation for being the place where brilliant new ideas would come to life. One of the so-called heroes Hogan brought in for Motorola was a guy named Wilf Corrigan, who ended up maneuvering first into Hogan's job in the 1970s and then head of Fairchild Camera and Instrument. The stories told about Corrigan suggest he could be a pretty vindictive guy. Probably the most notorious, if disputed, story of his tenure at Fairchild was the time the company conducted layoffs in 1975 via alphabetical announcement of names on the PA system. Unfortunately for Corrigan, being allegedly a jerk doesn't necessarily produce corporate dividends. By the late 1970s, Fairchild had fallen behind in an increasingly competitive industry. Intel had figured out microprocessors, the next great advance in computer chips after the integrated circuit. And Fairchild didn't really ever produce a competitive microprocessor. The original patents for the integrated circuit, which had cushioned the company's decline for many years, were about to run out. Following a hostile takeover bid from an electronics equipment firm called Gould, Corrigan put the company up for sale to the highest bidder, which ended up being a French oil services company called Schlumberger. They paid over $300 million in an all-cash bid. Mike Malone was at the shareholder meeting where the acquisition was announced, and the vibes were not good. Wilf Corrigan and Les Hogan were both on stage, and they were tense. Hogan had the strangest expression I think I've ever seen on a man. It was a combination of disbelief and fury because he had been informed of what was going to happen. And Wilf started going through all the usual preliminaries and all that. And then he announced that Fairchild was going to be sold to Schlumberger, a French oil exploration company. Not to IBM, not to GE, not to any company you expected, but to a French 
oil exploration company, there was just sort of this um, disbelief that filled the room. Then it filled the valley that what the hell are they doing? That I turned to my editor sitting beside me and I said, if one of them on the stage has a heart attack, I'm an Eagle Scout. I can, should I go up there and, you know, do cardiac, you know, trying to save him? And he said, no, there's probably another doctor in the audience. You run for the phone and get this, call the story in. Luckily for Malone, no one actually died at the shareholder meeting, other than yet another era of Fairchild Semiconductor. The disbelief was warranted. On first glance, this pairing does sound a little weird, and not just because Schlumberger is a real clunker of a name. What would an oil exploration company even want with a chip manufacturer? But computers and fossil fuels have had a pretty cozy relationship for a long time. Texas Instruments, the Dallas-based company that figured out silicon transistors right around the same time Fairchild did, began in 1930 as Geophysical Service Incorporated, a petroleum exploration company. They changed their name by 1952 after licensing Bell Labs' transistor patent. And while today Texas Instruments is probably better known for graphing calculators, they also developed a lot of microelectronics for the oil and gas industry. Some of the first investors in new semiconductor companies had originally made their money in oil and gas. And remember the chemicals we talked about earlier, the ones Gordon Moore asked some engineer about back in the day? A lot of them were petrochemicals. But we might also attribute the weirdness of the acquisition to the fact Schlumberger is weird. Well, really, the guy who was in charge of the company and made the acquisition happen, Jean Rabou, was weird. And to call Jean Rabou the Louis XIV of Schlumberger is not to give him enough credit or to say enough. This is from a 2018 oral history interview with Peter Hart. I'll explain who he is in a minute, but it'll make more sense after I let him tell you a little more about Jean Rabou. He was brilliant, and he had orchestrated this uh, growth of a company over several decades from a family business run by two brothers, the Schlumberger brothers, that dated back to the late 1920s, I think, to this fabulously successful worldwide thing. And in recent years, they had moved away from the oil field services, which was the birth and profit driver of the company, to various kinds of electronics and computing companies that had a separate half of their business or side of their business. And around that time, Jean Rabou proclaimed that AI was the new oil. First of all, the around that time Hart is referring to here is like the 1980s. So props, I guess, to Jean Rabou for maybe being the first guy to make that absolutely inane comparison. Secondly, between 1976 and 1980, Peter Hart was the director of the Artificial Intelligence Center at SRI International in Menlo Park. He worked on some pretty important developments in computer science while he was there. He worked on the A-Star algorithm, which has been applied in everything from video games to robotics to natural language processing. Peter Hart also worked on an artificial intelligence project around identifying viable mineral deposits. Schlumberger hired Hart to direct the Fairchild Laboratory for Artificial Intelligence Research, also known as FLARE, in 1980. Within the very niche realm of oil exploration tech, they did develop some kind of useful stuff. But the most impressive thing I could find about Schlumberger's AI research is that some of the people who worked there later worked at Pixar. Turns out physics simulators and graphics engineering are helpful for the oil extraction that fuels cars and for the Cars Cinematic Universe. 
There are other valid-ish reasons for an oil company to get into semiconductors besides AI. I mean, again, Texas Instruments kept an oil and gas division going for a long time for a reason. But the culture fit between Schlumberger and Fairchild was generally not great. Rabu put a guy named Tom Roberts in charge of Fairchild Semiconductor. Tom Roberts had no experience with semiconductors. And while Peter Hart remained diplomatic in his oral history interview, he did note that... Tom became a little bit infamous because he made comments to the top management staff at Fairchild that gained currency and weren't highly flattering. We don't know exactly what Robert said that was so contentious, but there is an infamous story mentioned in one history of corporate merger best practices that describes an unnamed top Schlumberger executive telling Fairchild employees, quote, you're all frogs, and we're going to see if you can learn to be princes. Turning Fairchild frogs into Schlumberger princes would end up being the least of Tom Roberts' worries. Around the time of the Fairchild acquisition, Mike Malone and his San Jose Mercury News colleague Susan Yoakum had begun chasing a big story. They'd been hearing that the lower-wage workers in chip manufacturing had been getting sick and that those workers suspected it had something to do with all the chemicals they were exposed to on the job. And it seemed like a bit of an open secret in the industry. As it happens, I was just in a conversation at a press conference with some trade re press reporters, and I said, you know, I'm hearing about people getting hurt by chemicals around here. Do you know anything about that? And they said, sadly, they said, yeah, we know about that, but... We're, we write for the trade press. We write positive stories about the industry, not negative. By the late 1970s, silicon chip manufacture had become a lot more precise, a lot more efficient, and a lot more chemical intensive. Also, at this point, the United States government had an Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which was signed into law under Nixon in 1970. There was a lot more research out there on the effects and risks of these chemicals, and Malone and Yoakum dug into it. In time, they became they were using some of the most dangerous chemicals on Earth. We found that a couple of them were, were what was called deposition, where uh, you could literally have a, a balloon full of it in a stadium and go above the toxic level, the legal toxic level. That's how dangerous this stuff was. At Fairchild specifically, Malone and Yoakum heard stories that indicated the company was pretty irresponsible with their chemicals. Well, to etch those silicon wafers, they had to have a lot of hydrofluoric acid. Well, they were kept in plastic containers. I mean, there was one story of a woman walking down a hallway pushing a cart with these uh, containers of hydrofluoric acid. She hit a broken spot in the linoleum because Fairchild was really cheap. Hit it, it tipped the cart over, and then fell in it. Now, hydrofluoric acid, if you get it on you, it doesn't burn. Mm. But it absorbs to your skin, and over the course of hours, it does what's called for bone. Okay, the Zoom with Mike cut out a little bit here, and honestly, I was I was kind of relieved because when it came back, he was talking about how the only thing that neutralizes hydrofluoric acid is bones. Mm. Here's a less body horror, but also pretty awful anecdote about Fairchild's chemical safety record. There's a, there's something that Fairchild did. There was another story of Fairchild where their their pollution control equipment 
didn't work quite right, and it dumped a whole bunch of effluent out of the fabrication area into the parking lot. Didn't hurt anybody, but people went out after work and discovered the paint had been stripped off the hoods of their cars. That's the kind of caustic stuff going on. And this kind of stuff was happening all over the industry. Mike and Susan published a huge investigative series called The Chemical Handlers in 1980. And while they happened to be the first journalists to dig into the story, workers and organizers were well aware of these conditions. Through the work of groups like the Santa Clara Center for Occupational Safety and Health and the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union, along with Mike and Susan's stories, millions of dollars of lawsuits were brought against Silicon Valley firms, including Fairchild. Also, if you're wondering if workers in the offshore facilities faced similar chemical exposure issues, they did. Uh, And some of those workers were making around 80 cents a day in certain parts of the world. In fall of 1981, the issue of mishandling chemicals stopped being just a workplace safety issue and became a public health one. Some routine digging at Fairchild's South San Jose chip plant revealed that a nearly 14,000-gallon underground solvent tank was completely empty because the tank's chemical mix was so corrosive it had melted the fiberglass walls. Apparently, this leak had gone unnoticed for some time, and an estimated 55,000 gallons of chemicals had been lost. Where did the solvents go? Into the soil and groundwater aquifers of South San Jose. One of those aquifers was used by a San Jose company to provide drinking water to residents. The public didn't learn about this until January 1982, at which point San Jose residents living in a neighborhood across the street from the Fairchild plant started to wonder if the numerous miscarriages, stillbirths, and babies born with serious heart conditions might be related to the chemical spill. It also made people worried about whether Fairchild's leak was an anomaly. It wasn't. An investigation into buried solvent tanks throughout Silicon Valley chip firms found that by 1983, 75% of them had contaminated soil and groundwater. More lawsuits followed, though many of those also settled ultimately. To be clear, Fairchild was far from the only offender here. They were, unfortunately, significant offenders. In the 1980s, there were 22 federal Superfund sites declared in Santa Clara County at semiconductor facilities. Two of them were Fairchild facilities, one in San Jose, one in Mountain View. And as we've already established, Fairchild was where most of the people in charge of the other polluting companies had cut their teeth and learned, or really in this case, decided how things were done. They had crushed unionization efforts among plant workers, which by the late 1970s were mostly Asian and Hispanic women, which meant that when these workers were injured or got sick, they were more likely to face retaliation for demanding safer working conditions. The industry Fairchild helped create focused more on perfecting the chip manufacturing process down to the precise chemical concentrations than assessing the risks those chemicals carried. I asked Mike Malone how all these workplace and public health and safety issues coming out so soon after the acquisition affected Schlumberger. He didn't have the inside scoop, but... Yeah, you think you're going to be on the cutting edge of the technological world, you end up with a dying company that's poisoning people. Yeah, I'm sure they really weren't happy with that. Schlumberger leadership tried replacing Roberts with a guy from Texas Instruments named Donald Brooks, but 
1986, they were looking to sell Fairchild off. A Japanese firm, Fujitsu, expressed interest, but this was that period of the 1980s where Japan was really excelling at high-tech to the point that American companies and pockets of the federal government were really stressed out about it as a security issue. Fun fact, part of Japan's growth as a tech powerhouse came from Fairchild licensing their patents with Japanese companies. The Fujitsu deal fell through, and what remained of Fairchild was sold at a loss to National Semiconductor. Incidentally, the company that Charlie Spork, the union-hating guy we heard from earlier, left Fairchild for in 1967. Some real Saturn sun devours him energy there. By 1987, Fairchild Semiconductor was a husk of the company it had once been. In 1997, National spun out a company called Fairchild Semiconductor, and that Fairchild did okay for a while as a niche vendor focused on power management. But that company, acquired by ON Semiconductor in 2016, was at best some fibrous chaff of a husk of the Fairchild that once was. Most of the company's mourners had already done so in 1979. And in any case, by 2016, Silicon Valley itself had largely moved on from chip manufacture. That South San Jose Superfund site became a shopping center in 1998. Fairchild's other Superfund site in Mountain View? It's part of the Google campus now. Fairchild's origin story is undeniably more compelling than its long tale in Twilight. Bill Shockley makes for a great villain. You know, who doesn't love a story about taking revenge on a shitty boss? And the resulting technology was world-changing. The later years aren't as tidy. They're characters, but they're not galvanizing or iconic in quite the same way. I asked David Brock, a curator at the Computer History Museum and co-author of both a book about Fairchild's first five years and a biography of one of its founders, Gordon Moore, why historical coverage of this company that ran for 59 years is so uneven. Part of this is, frankly, just that business history is a huge pain to compile. And David Brock should know, he compiled a lot of it. The oral history interviews with Jay Last and Peter Hart that we heard in this episode— David Brock was the interviewer on those. There's not like an institutional archive. There are technical reports from Fairchild that the archivists at Stanford literally pulled out of a dumpster and saved. <laughs> there are a collection of laboratory notebooks now at the Computer History Museum from Fairchild R&D that it took years of negotiation with National Semiconductor and Texas Instruments, who kind of successor owners of that intellectual property to preserve. You know, it has required people doing, you know, dozens and dozens of oral histories to try and document this stuff, working to get materials out of people's garages or attics or basements that they weren't supposed to take home. But he also acknowledged that part of this limited scope is a consequence of what people think they're telling the history of. That is because I think the history has been driven by um, attending to these inventions and innovations that happen. And there's some big ones that happen at that time. The silicon microchip probably being the biggest one. So in people trying to figure out, you know, how should we understand the silicon microchip and what that's all about, they focus on looking at one context where that 
story took place, which is this company. After 1968, the story of the silicon chip isn't really just a Fairchild story. Major innovations on silicon chips happen at other companies and eventually in other countries. I think maybe rightly so, maybe not rightly so. I guess we can think about it. Historians of technology are focused on these kind of stories of these inventions and innovations. Stories of inventions are often not stories about scaling or mass manufacture or the workers involved in that manufacturing process or the environmental costs of scaling. The integrated circuit is an undeniably transformative technology, but it's often historicized as an invention, as a product of singular genius discovery, of scientific brilliance, rather than what it really is, a product. A product that was made in vast quantities, a product originally mainly used for making advanced weapons for the United States military. A product made by companies who sought out the cheapest labor possible and cut corners enough times that they left Silicon Valley one of the most polluted places in the United States. This doesn't detract from the technical genius part, but it does illustrate that when capitalism implements brilliant technical inventions, it generally does so while in a race to the bottom. That process of seeking higher and higher profits through cutting costs wherever possible is partly how the United States ended up in its current panic, the one over not having robust chip manufacture anymore. Weirdly absent from a lot of the media coverage over bringing chip fabs back to the United States is the fact that they have a history of causing massive environmental damage and dozens of illnesses and injuries among workers around the world and in the United States. And while safety protocols in semiconductor manufacturing have improved in the last few decades, the chemicals are still really gnarly, and a lot of the epidemiological research on them tends to come only after years and years of use and exposure. I mean, right now, semiconductor industry groups have been actively fighting efforts in the United States and Europe to further regulate certain highly toxic chemicals, including the group of so-called forever chemicals, commonly referred to as PFAS. We can't really say that Fairchild didn't last if it existed in some corporate forum for nearly 60 years. And it feels weird to say that Fairchild failed just because they didn't continue to be the most important semiconductor company for its 59 years. Again, they, they invented an entire industry. Mike Malone argued that failure is kind of the point. I mean, it's the story of this town is failure. It's every company in this town dies eventually and gets superseded. And that's part of what makes this valley so strong. I also brought up this question of Fairchild as a failure or success with Malcolm Harris, the author of Palo Alto, who took us through Fairchild's origin story. And he brought up an important point. But I guess the question is, what is a company for? To me, this is really the question at the heart of this entire episode. Evaluating Fairchild Semiconductor as a company, as a success or a failure— is in part a function of answering this question. And of course, the answer depends on someone's relationship to the company. The eight guys who started Fairchild Semiconductor wanted to finish a project their jerk boss had abruptly abandoned. The countless engineers who came through Fairchild and started their own semiconductor firms wanted to be part of the next big thing. 
the low-wage manufacturing workers probably just wanted to make rent. This is a challenge David Brock faces in his work as a historian. I found when I took a close look at like looking at a company as a context for things going on, there is no fair child. You know, there is no singular actor. You know, maybe there's a, there's there might be a singular legal entity, but it's not an actor. There are all of these people in different factions, with different groups, with different interests. Maybe Fairchild Semiconductor was just a legal entity and not a conscious actor in and of itself. But Sherman Fairchild acted in service of his motive to make a profit on a business investment. The risk of telling the story of Fairchild Semiconductor primarily as a story of high-minded inventors and their admittedly important invention is that it obscures the reality that within capitalism, a company is ultimately for the production of more capital and its primary function is generating profit. That profit can come from making commodities like computer chips, or it can come from licensing intellectual property like patents, or it can come from buying and selling companies themselves. If we understand the purpose of Fairchild Semiconductor as a mechanism through which money could be turned into more money, even its so-called downfall in 1979 can be read as a success. I mean, the shareholders all got paid. In theory, the invisible hand of the market will select for innovation, and the companies that produce profit will also produce some broader social benefit. In practice? Well, first of all, let's not forget that Fairchild's first products went into U.S. military weapons, the social benefits of which are questionable. But even as semiconductors have expanded into consumer markets and produced benefits to humanity, at the end of the day, the model of creating profits for a few people at the top tends to have costs for everyone else. With semiconductors, those costs can look like toxic pollution or a lifetime of health problems. Of course, this logic isn't exclusive to Fairchild Semiconductor's story, but Silicon Valley has a weird tendency toward exemplifying it. And some of that is because of the legacy set by and in the Fairchild Semiconductor era. Its, it's DNA is still very deep in the valley. And not just not just the traitorous eight and the, and the first Fairchild, but the second Fairchild too, with that sort of hard driving, you know, unrelenting, cold blooded mentality, uh, which culminates in the cold blooded event of selling it off to a company that will kill it. That's part of our DNA too, and that's in many ways that's our worst side. Ripcorp was written and researched by me, Ingrid Burrington, with fact-checking from Matt Giles. Ripcorp's producers are Megal Jenardin and Mike Brignetta. Our associate producer is Taylor Benke, who I'm so happy to have on the team. Welcome, Taylor. Our audio engineers are Michael Simonelli and Andrew Atkin. Our executive producer is Jason Oberholzer. Ripcorp is a production of Charts and Leisure. <laughs>